0: Good morning. If you don't know who I am, I am Andrew Kappenman, and I get the pleasure to serve on staff here at Salt Church as one of the church plants. And so if you're new in the room, uh, Salt Church was planted about three years ago because of the University of Florida being here, wanting to be a light into the community, but to be a light onto the campus. And so... Patrick Chandler and his family and I, we have both moved to Gainesville for the last year, year and a half, and we are the next church planters being sent out, and so our goal is to be sent out from Salt Church to Orlando to plant at UCF, and so we are... We are excited about that. We are pumped, and we just think we, every time we get to preach, we get to share that story, we get to share what the Lord has done in our life, and we ask you to pray for us as we are going to transition soon to, to see that happen, hopefully through the Lord's grace, and um, we've asked you to pray for certain things, and one of the cool stories that we get to share with you this morning is that over the past six or so months, we have really been praying for our staff to start to be filled, and so one of those things is assault director, is having that person who is going to lead our college ministry for UCF. And it's my pleasure to get to share that as of this past week, we are able to hire a salt director and we know who he is and we're excited about his family coming. And uh, we're pumped to see what the Lord is going to do. We can't share his name and all that kind of stuff with you yet because he's got to share with his church and with his uh, the people that he serves alongside. But we are super excited about what the Lord is going to do. We got to spend uh, last weekend together just to get to walk around the campus with our families, and we just see that the Lord is going to do do something great. And so we just thank you for praying uh, for us in that way. Continue to pray for us. We still have to fill out our staff with worship leaders and ladies who will serve on staff and all the above. But we thank you so much. Um, But it is my pleasure to get to serve here at Salt Church until we go and to be able to preach uh, this morning, get to share the word. And so if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter 20. We are going to be in the last few verses of that chapter And we are going to dive back into that this morning. If you haven't been with us, Salt Church over the summer has been walking through the book of Exodus, walking through the story of the Israelite people. And we are going to go to a passage this morning that most people are not going to jump into for their daily devotion. Okay, like this is not a, I want to hear from the Lord this morning. I'm going to jump into Exodus chapter 21 through 23, right? That's kind of where our our base is going to be. It can be confusing at times and really kind of difficult to read and really kind of hard to find clarification about what this means for us. But my goal and my hope is that this morning to really bring some clarification to that. And so if you were here last week or if you watched online or or whatever or if you weren't here at all, last week Paul preached through the Ten Commandments. Right? Everybody knows pretty much, or at least heard of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not steal, honor God, all those different types of things. And so the very first four of those commands were how our relationship with God is supposed to be. How are we to worship Him? How are we to honor Him And the last six? are how do we deal with each other? How are we going to have relationships with the other and do that well? Well, this week, as we dive into the passage that has been given to me to preach, We are going to see a number of different scenarios, different laws that God has given Moses to tell his people really on how these Ten Commandments play out, how they are to be lived out within the people. And so if you want to think about it this way, before I got married, Megan and I, we were asked by our mentor who we wanted to perform our our wedding to do marriage counseling, right? If you're married in the room, anybody do marriage counseling before they got married, right? For us, that was a prerequisite. If, if we were wanted to be married by this certain individual, we had to do it, right? And so I don't know how many weeks it was. I think it was like six weeks, and we had to go once a week for six weeks. And what that pre-marriage counseling is supposed to do, right, is to tell you everything about marriage and that you're going to do it perfectly, right? You're going to know everything. I can tell you that getting close to 15 years of marriage now, and I have no idea what I'm doing still to this day. But that pre-marriage counsel was supposed to be kind of like, a, hey, we want to help you kind of learn some different things that you may walk through, some different ideas and scenarios that you may have to walk through with your wife and, and with your husband and how to walk through them together. It's kind of the same way with a child. When you have a child, they want you to read this Baby Wise book. I can tell you for sure that the Baby Wise book did not prepare me, For the middle of the night, projectile vomiter in the bed, having to clean up hair, and all that kind of stuff. It kind of gave a good basis of like, okay, how do you need to feed your baby? When? Like, what to look signs for when they're sick? But I wasn't truly ready, or I didn't know all of what could happen. College students, it may be the same way for you as you enter college for the first time, that parents and mentors can tell you everything about what college is about, but you have no idea fully what it is until you actually start doing it. And So my goal this morning is as we walk through these examples, as we walk through these laws that the Israelites have, is to show you how they can form our hearts today, but also the freedom that we have in Christ. So these next chapters are really basically, if we want to really kind of dive into it, are really kind of the application to the Ten Commandments of what we just heard last week. So if you read the Ten Commandments, these are kind of the application to it. Is it exhaustive for the Israelites? Are the Israelites going to know how to do everything that they're supposed to do? No. But just like the situations that I just spoke about, about my life and family, of being a, a husband and being a father, it's a pretty good starting point for how to live with one another. How they are going to live daily alongside each other and not kill each other while they're at it, Right? Because what we see throughout the Old Testament is that the Israelites were given this moral law, right? The Ten Commandments. And we see that they're given like a civil law, which is over 600 other laws. And they were supposed to live by them. But we know that if you know the whole story, that as you read through the Old Testament, the Israelites did not get it right all the time. They failed multiple times. And so as they were failing, as they were looking to the law that God provided for them, and they're thinking, man, we're terrible people. We can't keep this. There was always a need for like a sacrifice. And we'll talk a little bit about that this morning. There was always something that needed to be killed on their behalf in order to be right before God. And so as we walk through these this morning, I hope that you would see our main idea this morning or our big idea is that Jesus is the fulfiller of the law that we need because in our nature in who we are we cannot uphold the law. The Israelite people could not uphold all these laws perfectly. It was impossible. In our nature we cannot do that. And so as we walk through this scripture, I love to see what uh, to show you what Tony Marita said or to share with you about this passage. This is the day-to-day application and the how-to to the 10 commandments. But he also shows is also a picture of how God Shows us his character, how he is just and he is compassionate, and that we should model him as he leads his people. In Micah 6:8 it says this: Mankind, he has told each of you what is good and what the Lord requires of you, to act justly, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with your God. He's taught you what is good, what he requires of you. How to love faithfulness and to walk humbly with your God. That is what God was trying to teach the Israelite people. This is who you need to be to be faithful, act justly, and walk humbly with me. And as we do that, we need to, to make sure that as we're reading through these, as these can be some obscure things for us to read today, and as we walk through them and talking about garments and talking about Goat's milk and all these different types of things that you could see in this passage that we can make two major mistakes as we read this morning And number one mistake, I think they'll be on the screen The first mistake that we can make as we read through this passage is to think that the things that are said in these passages are irrelevant to us That they don't mean anything to who we are as living today Are they the exact situations or the exact things that we would walk through as people of the church today? No, but that doesn't mean that they're irrelevant. That doesn't mean that there are not lessons that God was teaching the Israelite people that we can't learn from. The second mistake is, is that we adopt these things into our everyday lives. That could get awkward really quick. (laughs) If you look through this passage and some of the things that the Israelite people had to do, if we were to do these things today, that would be kind of awkward. They just don't filter into our culture in the same way. There's a healthy balance between understanding what God wanted the Israelites to put into practice and how we apply it today. But what we must remember, as God is doing these things, as he is, he is teaching the Israelite people, they were a new nation They were a people group that were just learning how to function with one another. They were wandering around. They really didn't have any really fully direction in their brain of what was going on. And they were just learning how to be a people group together. And God knew that. Can you imagine our country without any function at all? Without any really base system to go off of? Like our country can get crazy as it is right now. Just think if there was no guidance, no leadership, nothing that is to propel us forward as a body of people. And so God knew that of the Israelites. He knew that they needed guidance. And when it comes to living in relationship, not only with him and with others, you can also think of it in the same way as when you become a new believer. Just think about when you became a new believer. If you know Christ, just think about that time when you became a new believer, whether you've been a part of church your entire life or, or, or not at all, and you just get saved, and you're thinking, now what? Now what? What do I do now? Oh, I can't go out every night and, and, and get drunk anymore. Oh, man I, have to, man, I have to watch the words that I say and, and, and how I speak to others. Or, man, I can't think about myself first. I actually have to start thinking about others first and serve others before myself. These are all new realities to a new believer. We have stories throughout Scripture that gives us a picture of what that looks like. Will it be the exact same situation? No. But living according to the law was a new reality for the Israelites. And they were trying to figure out what that looked like. They were trying to figure out, okay, what does this mean to me as a follower of the one true God? So they needed some of these laws. They needed some of these examples or scenarios to help them walk with God. So I know that's kind of a a long walk into the text, a a long kind of introduction of what, what, what we're doing here this morning, but I felt like we needed to have a really good base of what it meant for the Israelites to hear these things for the first time because it was new for them, just as it is for us to hear some things from Scripture that may be new to us. And so we are going to walk through some of these passages. I have been given chapter 20 23, twenty verses 22 through chapter 23 verses 33, which is all these laws that God has given them. We are only going to look at a few of those and see how they apply to us. And I hope that as you see, as we work this this morning, that if you read through this passage this week, that you can look at them in the same way. So if you have your Bible, Exodus chapter 20, and we're going to be in verses 22 through 26 first. Okay, we'll read the passage and then we'll walk through it together. It says in verse 22 of chapter 20, then the Lord said, told to Moses, this is what you are to say to the Israelites. You have seen that I have spoken to you from heaven. Do not make gods of silver to rival me. Do not make gods of gold for yourselves. Make an earthly, earthen altar for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and fellowship offerings and your flocks and herds. I will come to you and I'll bless you in every place where I cause my name to be remembered. If you make a stone for me, do not build it out of cut stones. If you use your chisel on it, you will defile it. Do not go up to my altar on the steps so that your nakedness is not exposed on it. And we see in these first few verses of our passage this morning that God shows them how to worship himself. How to worship God. And the first thing we see is, in verses 22, is that we are supposed to worship the one true God, nothing else. He says, this is what I say to you, Israelites, that you've seen that I've spoken to you from heaven. Do not make gods of silver to rival me, and do not make gods of gold for yourselves. And Paul hit this really strong last week when we are supposed to worship God and only God. God is reiterating it in the beginning of this passage this week. Why would you think that he is doing that? Because this makes sense to me because I'm a dude and I'm hard-headed and I know that things have to be repeated to me a thousand times in order for me to get it through my thick skull. Just ask my wife. she'll, She'll tell you that's the truth. But God is reiterating this to the the Israelites because they needed to hear that God is the one true God. They have seen all these gods from Egypt that were worshipped. They will see a ton of different gods as they walk through the wilderness. And what God is trying to tell them is that as you see all these things, remember it is I the one who has spoke to you. You are the one that needs to know that I am the one true God. There is nothing else. Look to me. Worship me. Not a manufactured God, not something that we can form in our hands. He says, Do not make gods of silver or gods of gold for yourselves. The thing that it is for us, we don't necessarily make gods of gold or silver. We can, and I think a lot of us do in certain ways, but it is easy to slip into worshiping a God that is not God, that even feels more like Christian worship. We can worship the building that we're in right now. We can worship having the biggest fancy building with all the lights and all the smoke and all the things in it. But guess what? We've taken our eyes off of God and we are putting it on something that we have created. Not only do we worship those things, we can worship our pastor. We can think, oh, man, if you just come to my my church, my pastor is the greatest. Paul, we love you. You're awesome. But we can even put our leaders on a pedestal and think that they are are greater than even God at times. It's that celebrity pastor type of mindset. I'm going to read this book because this is the influence that this person has. Or I'm gonna listen to this podcast because this is the influence that this person has. And what we're doing is we are worshiping something that is manufactured, something that is of ourselves and not God. It's easy to slip into that. And in verse 24, it says, make an earthen altar for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and fellowship offerings and your flocks and herds and I will come to you and bless you in every place where I caused my name to be remembered. We see that the altar here that they were meant to, to build, to put together was supposed to be a simple altar, not extravagant, not something that we would look to or they would look to to think that, hey, look at what that man made. Look at it. He even tells them not to even cut it or touch it with their chisel, not even to put marks in it. So that someone would look at it in a way that they would think about the, the one who created it, the one that wanted it to be put there in the first place. Supposed to be simple. That kiss analogy, right? That keep it simple, stupid? That's what God is trying to say to them right now. What you need is you need some stones. You need to stack them all on top of each other. You need to have a place to sacrifice animals on your behalf so that I see that you are following me. And so the question that we ask ourselves and what we must ask ourselves, are we worshiping or looking at the workmanship of man or are we looking at the workmanship of God? In our churches, in our lives, in our jobs, in our families, what are we worshiping? Are we worshiping something that is not of God or are we worshiping the one true God has put it here for us? Make a simple altar, sacrifice it. On it, on, my, on your behalf, for me. This is what they covered the Israelites. This is what kept them right before God. For us, Jesus has become that sacrifice. They were to sacrifice on this altar. Jesus sacrificed his life on the cross on our behalf. The altar for us is our lives, and we are to sacrifice it for him. Romans 12:1 says this, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. God was calling the Israelites to make a simple offer, altar, sacrifice on it. Look to him as the one true God. In the same way, Jesus is saying, I have sacrificed my life on behalf of yours. Now, would you sacrifice your life on the altar for me? And in doing so, we are worshiping the one true God creator of this world that is the only thing worth giving our lives for. There is nothing else greater than sacrificing our lives for other than the call of Jesus. And that doesn't mean that every single one of us in the room are going to be pastors or missionaries or are working in the church. That may mean that you working in your business, in your professional field, showing people the light of the gospel where they would never, ever see it from anywhere else. That is worshiping God in the correct way, not looking to anything else, sacrificing our lives on the behalf of his so we see Moses get this law and, and, and show this to the Israelite people. like, hey, guys, this is how we are to worship God. As long as we are out here, as long as we are alive, this is what we are to do. Then as we continue to walk through the passage, we see how to worship God. Then we get into some different kind of stuff. In the next section, we're just going to drop right back down into the next ses- section, is see how we are to treat servants. How we are to treat servants. And if you have your Bible, and if you look at the, the little top section, it may say, like, laws about slaves. And that can already get tricky. You automatically are starting to put stuff in your, your mind like, my goodness, what is the Bible even talking about? But as we read this passage, I want you to see something that, uh, that is, should be unique to this passage. Starting in verse 2 of chapter 21, it says, When you buy a Hebrew slave... He is to serve for six years. Then the seventh, he is to leave as a free man without paying anything. If he arrives alone, he is to leave alone. If he arrives with a wife, he is to leave with him. The wife is to leave with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children belong to her master and the man must leave alone. But if the slave declares, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I don't want to leave as a free man. His master is to bring him to the judges and then bring him to the, doorpost, the door or doorpost, and his master will pierce his ear with an awl, and he will serve his master for life. So as we, soon as we hear this, we start to think, is the Bible condoning slavery? Not at all. Because in this situation, when they are talking about this, this is a completely voluntary action by this servant. It's completely voluntary. This is a a servant walking into servanthood for a master. And the reasons why these things are are, are done, the reason why a person would do that is, number one, a lot of times there was a debt owed. It's like I owe this master. Right, this person helped me. He gave me something, whether it's currency, food, or whatever, being taking care of me. And so I owe this debt to him. So I'm going to walk into servanthood for this master to pay back my debt. Another reason for this is to try for someone to try to get out of poverty. That they have nothing. They have nothing to help feed themselves, to take care of themselves. And so they would go into servanthood for a master, live with this person for six years. Learn a trade, earn some money, be able to take care of themselves, and then been sent out as a free man or woman. And so, as we look at this passage, we cannot look at this set of verses through the eyes of slavery that we have seen within the United States a tragedy. It's impossible. This is not the same thing. We do not, it does not go in the same way because we see the type of slavery that we have seen in our history as a country. In Exodus, it is forbidden. If you jump over to Exodus 21, verse 16, it says, whoever kidnaps a person must be put to death, whether he sells him or the person is to be found in his possession. And so God set up a major law, a major statute. If this was going to happen, this is what ought to take place. These people were not treated like a slave. They were treated as a servant, someone who would to, to work alongside them. And if we really want to think about it in, in the correct terminology, the correct language, we can think about this passage more like a military contract or a sports contract, if you know anything about those things. When I was a boy, the original Top Gun movie was the business, right? So throughout my entire childhood... I dreamed about being a fighter pilot. My dad was in the Air Force, and, so I was, and he was a, a fighter jet mechanic, and so I was around jets all the time. I saw them, saw them take off, saw them flying. That's what I wanted to be. Having some, some hard hearts lately seeing the new movie. I want to go back to that point, right? But anyway, seeing that my entire childhood, my, even into my like, junior high, high school years, that's what I wanted to do. I was willing to go to a recruiter, sign the dotted line to say, hey, for the military, you have the next four years of my life if I get to do this. But signing that contract in that way, and at the end of it, then I'm free to go. Same thing with a sports player in our professional world today what they would do is they will sign a four or five six year contract say hey i'm going to play with your team for the next so many years you're going to pay me this amount of money and at the end of it we're both we can split ways if we want to that is what is going on with the israelites here that these people were walking into a contract with a master with a a servant to say hey this is what i owe to you or this is what my plan is they serve for six years and at the end of that six years then there would be freedom. They would be able to walk free after that with no payment or anything. There was an option for service of life. If they were given a wife and they had kids, then the master says, hey, you can stay with me for the rest of your life. Help work with me. Help make the land. Whatever they were doing, whatever the, the trade was that they were working, they were able to step in that for life in order to be with their wife and their children. And so as we read this passage... And we look at it, you're probably thinking, "What the heck does this mean for us?" Because <laughs> I thought about it the same way. I'm like, "What in the world does that mean for us?" Patrick and I are stepping into, into a new roles as, as leading a church, leading a staff. And so I automatically thought, how am I going to treat those people within my church, within our staff?" How do you treat the people who you may work alongside? Is it with dignity and respect? Because even in the midst of this servanthood, there was a dignity and respect that was held for all individuals involved. How do you treat someone, whether you're over them or not? How do you treat someone that you're just working alongside? It's your coworker that you have to be around every single day, even if they get on your nerves. How do you treat those who are doing a service for you? Many of you probably have houses or own houses. How do you treat the person that's coming that you've signed a contract with to put a new roof on your house? How do you deal with that? Are you the person that's out in the yard looking at every shingle that's being put on the house, complaining about how it was thrown? or How do you treat someone who... You're paying maybe even just to come take care of your lawn or take, come take care of your pool. God is using this to say, hey, there are boundaries to this servanthood. There are boundaries to the way that I'm leading you. This is the way that you are to handle it. There's ways that you should care for this person, to, to provide for them. And that at the end of their time, then they are free to go. What does that look like for us as we care for those that are around us in our workplace, in the people who we're in contract work with, no matter who it may be? Because the way people see us and how we deal with in those situations will tell a lot about who we are in Christ. Will they truly believe that we're followers of Jesus by the way that we treat others? Loving our neighbors in that way. Laws about servants. We see a law about how to worship God. We see a law about servanthood. If you turn over in your um, in your Bible, you may not even have to turn the page. But if you turn over to uh, Exodus chapter twenty-two, we are going to see laws and statutes set up to care for the vulnerable. To care for the vulnerable. In verses twenty-one through twenty-seven in chapter twenty-two, and then again in chapter twenty-three, verses ten through twelve. We're going to read about what God says about this section. Says you must not exploit a resident alien or oppress him, since you were resident aliens in the land. Since you were resident aliens in the land of Egypt, you must not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them, they will no doubt cry to me, and I will certainly hear their cry. My anger will burn, and I will kill you with the sword. Then your wives will be widows, and your children will be fatherless. If you lend silver to my people, and to, uh, to, my people, to, the poor person, to the poor person among you, you must not be like a creditor to him. You must not charge him interest. If you are ever to take your neighbor's cloak as collateral, return it to him before sunset. For it is his only covering. It is his clothing for his body. What will he sleep in? And if he cries out to me, I will listen because I am gracious. And then jumping over to chapter 23 and verse 10. It says, sow your land for six years and gather its produce. But on the seventh year, you are to let it rest and leave it uncultivated so that the poor amongst you may eat from it and the wild animals may consume what they leave. Do the same with your vineyard and your olive grove. God wants them to remember that they were once foreigners in a different land and once without a home. And they were not treated very fairly or in a right manner. And we don't know how many people, but we do know that there was a certain amount of people that left with them from Egypt that are traveling with them that were not necessarily Hebrews and were not necessarily Israelites. So how were they being treated? Anybody that came into their fold, how were they going to treat them? How were they going to care for the vulnerable that were resident aliens, whether they are a widow, a fatherless, ch- or, or fatherless, fatherless child? How were they going to care for the poor? How are they going to show the love of God? One story sticks out in my life and in my wife's life when someone cares for us in a a different time. You really truly don't know what it means to be a resident alien until you are that resident alien. And I remember uh, it was either our second or third year of marriage. Megan and I were in a East Asian country uh, serving on a mission trip over Christmas. And during that trip... Megan got extremely sick a couple of days in like cold like maybe fever I don't know what was going on, but she was feeling bad Early on in our trip one of the first couple days we met a guy on a college campus named Victor And Victor heard us say hello to him in English and like how are you doing and he was automatically like sucked in He was like wait, I'm learning English these white people just talk to me in English. He whips around. And from that moment on, on that day, on that campus, Victor was with us wherever we went. He was translating for us. He was helping us. But what I remember most about Victor is that when Megan got sick, we were staying in a hotel right next to the college campus. Victor shows up one morning, breaks into their kitchen in the hotel, and cooks this concoction of like brown sugar and ginger and all this stuff and is like knocking on our door at like 7 a.m. saying, hey, Megan needs to drink this or she'll feel better. (laughs) When we felt in the most vulnerable time of being in a country without anything we've ever known, my wife being sick, I didn't really know what to do. You go to a pharmacy, you're like, I don't know what to give her. I could kill her if I give her this pill. You know, like we need to stay away from that kind of stuff. But this student, this person, seeing and caring for us in a way that we could have never even imagined, making us feel like we had someone that was going to help us out, even at a time that we felt kind of hopeless. He showed us care when we felt out of place. So what God is trying to show the Israelite people is that we as people of Christ, as we as people of God, we must care just as God cared for them. That we cannot forget of how God has provided and has shown his faithfulness as we've already sung this morning and as we care for those that are around us. Whether it be someone who is in poverty, whether it may be someone who is an international student on this campus for the first time out of their home country. Whatever it may be, whether it's the widow or the fatherless child, how are we going to show the care that God has shown us? And I can tell you, church, that is one of the greatest pictures of who we are in Jesus, is how we care for those that are around us. Because God says in this passage, he says that he will hear their cry. And when he hears their cry, he says, my anger will burn and I'll kill you with the sword that your wives and your widows will be, uh, your wives will be widows and your children will be fatherless. God will hear their cry. He, he, and the thing is, he already told them that he heard the Israelites cry. In Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, it says, After a long time, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned because of their difficult labor, and they cried out, and their cry for help because of their difficult labor ascended to God. And in verse 24, it said, God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and with Jacob, and God saw the Israelites, and God knew. When the Israelites were in their worst spot, God heard their cry. And what God is trying to tell them is like, if we don't care for those around us, he will hear their cry as well. How are we going to care just as God cared for us? They were also supposed to give without groaning or without hoarding and without want of return. It's like, hey, even if you take a cloak for collateral, you were to give that back by sunset, even if everything has not taken place that we're supposed to take place that day, because what will he sleep in? What will he have? And then again, he says, and if he cries out to me, I will listen because I'm gracious. One quote, an example that I heard from my stepdad early on in life as working on a a cotton and soybean farm in Mississippi is that farmers and people who do that, um, I'm far from that life i don't know understand all of it i just know that that's what i did for a job throughout my childhood and throughout my high school and college years was to work on a farm but i just remember that all farmers just kind of give and take from each other it's like hey i need this piece of equipment because this is what i have to do or i need this tractor whatever it may be and i remember my stepdad telling me he said anytime he gave something away now bigger price items obviously were you know secluded from this but like he would always say to me He said, give without expecting to ever get back or don't give it at all. "Hmm." Took a long time to really understand what that meant, but that is who we are to be in Christ. How we are supposed to care for each other. That when someone is in need, we are supposed to give that away, to give whatever is needed away without ever even expecting it in return, because that is what God has lavishly done for us. Show that we are followers of Christ as we care for others. Then he finishes this passage with some promises and warnings in Exodus chapter 23, starting in verse 20. It says, I'm going to send an angel before you to protect you on the way and bring you to the place I've prepared you, the promised land, Right? He says, be, t- be attentive to this angel and listen to him. Do not defy him because he will not forgive your acts of rebellion, for my name is in him. But if you will carefully obey him and do everything I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and a foe to your fo- foes. For my angel will go before you and bring you to the land of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I will wipe them out. Do not bow and worship to their gods. Do not serve them. Do not imitate their practices. Instead, demolish them and smash their sacred pillars to pieces. Serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water. I will remove illnesses from you. No women will miscarry or be childless in your land, and I will give you the full number of your days. So God gives them all these scenarios, that, some that we even talk about, to help the Israelites live with one another, And in the midst of it, it gives them this promise. He says, if you follow me, if you listen to me, I promise that I'm going to guide and I'm going to protect you as long as you listen. As long as you follow these commands, I am going to be your God. And if you follow and if you read through the Old Testament, there are times when the Israelites walk away from this and God removes his hand from them. And they... Trouble and downfall starts to happen to these people. And then they turn back to God. And guess what? God continues to bless them. He's like, no, you're my people. So he means what he says. He says, follow me. I promise to God and protect you. Follow these ways. Again, he says, do not worship other gods. It will be a snare to you. He says, as you see that I'm going to take out all of these people groups, as I'm going to move these people out of the way to give you the land that I want to give to you, he says, do not bow and worship to their gods. Do not serve them. Do not imitate their practices because I'm the one true God and I'm the one that made this happen on your behalf. He tells them all these things. He gives them all these laws. We see the moral law and the Ten Commandments, but then again, we see like a civil law in which we didn't read hardly any of them this morning, but it's like over 600 other laws that the Israelite people had to follow. So we've only really scratched the surface of these laws and and guidelines that were set up for his people. How in the world could they ever keep all of them? How in the world, if we had to follow and keep all these laws, how could we keep all of them? It is impossible. They couldn't. We can't. They fail. We will fall. We will fall short. We will fall short in our marriages. We will fall short in our parenting. We will fall short in our friendships as a student, as a son or daughter. There are ways in every step of our life that we are going to fail. But I want... You to know this morning that we have a hope in Jesus. Because if you remember, our main idea is that Jesus is the fulfiller of the law that we needed. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is speaking the Sermon on the Mount. He says, I didn't come to destroy the law, but I came to fulfill it. I've come to make it whole so that when you fail, that you look to me and know that I am going to die on your behalf. This passage gets quoted a lot in our services, but Ephesians 2, 1 through 5 says this. Church says, if you were dead in your trespasses and sin, in which you previously walked according to the ways of the world, according to the ruler and the power of the air, the spirit now working and disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desire, carrying out our own inclinations, our own flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ. Though even though we were dead in our trespasses, you are saved By grace. As we see, church, as we finish up this morning, that this is a lot of laws, a lot of nuances, a lot of ways that the Israelites were called to live and can be confusing to us. God gave them a hope. He said, Hey, you follow these statutes. And I'm going to give you the promised land. I'm going to be your guide. I'm the one who is going to sustain you. I'm going to remove all illnesses. I'm going to keep your uh, your wives from having miscarriages. You follow me. This is what's going to happen. Be obedient. For us, we are sinners. We are lost. We are without hope. But we see the greater picture that Jesus came to fulfill all the laws, and he came to die on the cross on our behalf. And that if we look to him, even in our trespasses and sin, by God's rich and mercy and his great love that he had for us, gives us an opportunity to be saved by Jesus. And now we can look back to these laws, we can look back to these things, and we can look at pictures of how we are to care for each other, how we are to treat the vulnerable, how we are to live our daily lives because of what Christ has done for us. I think so often that we like to live in the here and now and what's in the future. Brandon kind of saw some of my thunder this morning already when I was thinking about this passage that we forget of what God's done in our past and how he's taught us, how he's led us, through his story and that his story was written for us to see, to know and to put into practice as, as we live today it might not be the same thing, it might not be what we see in this set of passages that we read this morning but I can guarantee you that the people around us need to see that Jesus has changed us That we follow this book, not because it's a set of laws and a set of rules that that were written for us to to follow, but because Jesus has saved us and we want to live according to the way that he has led us. And I pray that that's where everyone is this morning. If you don't know Jesus, I pray there'll be people at the end of the service that will be standing down here to pray. You may need to find someone in the room that you've met this week, whether it's a salt company leader or a pastor, and he's like, I just need to talk about what this means to follow Jesus. Because he is our hope and our only hope. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I'm so thankful that even as we read a new uh, Old Testament passage, a, a passage that may seem obscure, may seem out of reach for us, Lord, that you still teach us truth on how to follow you that Jesus has come to fulfill the law and the demand to follow all these rules, to be right before God, that because of Jesus on the cross, we can be saved and we can have hope even when we fail you. Lord, we are striving to be holy because you're holy. Lord, would you continue to mold our hearts? Would you continue to draw us to you? as we've seen your faithfulness to your people, the Israelites, Lord, we know that you are even faithful to us now through Jesus and for the rest of our lives. Lord, we love you, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen.